Hello and welcome to Conversations in Economic Central. This week, I had the exciting opportunity to interview Gigi Foster. Gigi is a professor of economics at the University of New South Wales and was voted the Young Economist of the Year by the Australian Economic Society in 2019. And many of you may have heard Gigi on the ABC's The Economist podcast, which I personally have found really interesting. So it was a really uh, exciting opportunity for me to be able to interview Gigi and for her to give up her time. So the first question that I put to Gigi was that we'd seen a very large contraction of major economies around the world. And I asked Gigi to explain how we can use behavioral economics to explain some of the changes we've seen in our economy and others in major economies around the world. A very disproportionate focus on COVID-19, and that has brought about both the political changes and the popular support for those policy changes that uh, has basically led us to be in the recession that we are in now. So the policy changes we've seen in response to COVID-19 and then the popular support for those policies have both been driven by some behavioral factors, including excess salience, what we call salience. So it's sort of how much is our attention focused on a particular thing rather than the big picture or the context in which that is happening. It's also been driven by present bias, another one of the sort of terms associated with behavioral economics where we're looking at costs right now rather than costs long into the future. Costs right now, of course, include people who might die of COVID-19, right, or, or have long COVID or, or any of these other bad, you know, uh, results from this particular virus. But the costs of the policies that we've seen implemented here and in other countries will actually not just be occurring right now, but for years to come um, because of just so many of the dynamic aspects of the economy that we may get into. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been a, a real focus on what's happening right now and how salient this particular thing is. And just fear as well has been a big player. So, you know, fear is, uh, is unique amongst the emotions in the sense that it really locks everything else down and it, and it zooms your mind in on the threat and you kind of don't see a lot of other things. And so that fear response, which is, of course, part of, uh, you know, an aspect of humans that mainstream economics doesn't really consider in its homo economicus, you know, rational, unemotional sort of model, um, that has really been the driver of many of the decisions that we've seen, at least in the very, very short run. And then that fear has developed a, a mind of its own, essentially, as it's been incorporated into groups uh, and, you know, nations and, you know, subgroups within those nations. And those groups have then continued to put the pressure on to, to keep these draconian policies in place. And so, um, you know, all of that kind of taps into a side of human nature, which isn't traditionally captured in mainstream economics. And so you might think of that as also being partly about behavioral economics. Yeah, it's certainly very interesting. So why do you think then the a pandemic has affected economies in the way it has this year? And why has that never happened before? Well, it's a very interesting question why we haven't um, shut down economies around the world when we've seen previous episodes of very contagious flu-like viruses. Because, of course, we have flu season every year. And flus often kill quite a number of people, actually. <laughs> but those... Uh, don't make it into the national and international media the way that COVID-19 has. I think part of it is that it was a, a scary new thing, sort of like SARS or MERS. You remember those, those previous yeah, ones, the swine flu, right? Yeah. They, they, they tend to be scary and then, then quickly sort of it fades and we move on. But in this case, it didn't really fade and we didn't move on, partly, I think, because the, the media really picked it up quickly and then there was a quick dissemination around the world. And then in mid-March, we had this modeling come out from um, Imperial College London, Neil Ferguson's modeling, which projected massive amounts of deaths. And that projection triggered policy in 
in country and then country and then country. There was kind of a bit of a, of a um, you know, monkey see, monkey do sort of response amongst the countries that had even previously said that this wasn't such a big deal. So our, in Australia, our chief office, health officer had said prior to mid-March, look, this is not really a big deal for 80% of cases or something like this. Similarly, the UK people said there wasn't such a big deal uh, early on. Sweden, of course, stayed with that basic message, not disregarding the fact that it can be very, very uh, threatening for certain subgroups of the population, of course, aged people and, and people who have immunocompromised situations, sure, but you know, not for the general population. And so again, the general lockdowns, which affect everybody, um, you know, would not have seemed prior to mid-March to be a good idea, but those projections got a lot of play in the media. They really moved politicians. And then that's, there was there's a domino effect of politician after politician. Now, the one country that really did resist this a lot from the, from the first moment was Sweden. Yeah. And so that proves that you don't have to cave. You, know, you don't have to cave to this sort of monkey see, monkey do kind of thing uh, and to obtain your post-enlightenment ability to think you know, logically and clearly about this and not be uh, blinded by your fear and by, your, by the salience of this particular way in which people may, may succumb to, uh, you know, to, to an illness or a death. So, uh, so it's, it's not impossible. Um, unfortunately, it just it, it did happen. And it's not, I don't think, you know, we're going to be studying this for, for years in yeah. economics and sociology, anthropology, psychology, you know, social psychology, just to try to figure out what was the core set of ingredients that really made this go over the line. But these are some of the things that, that strike me as being somewhat unique. Yeah, yeah. Now, you, you mentioned Sweden there in your last answer. Now, that they did take, as you've rightly pointed out, a, a very, very different approach to really the rest of the world to managing the pandemic, but they still have suffered um, a relatively large economic contraction. Is that something to do with behavioral economics? Well, there's really two things to say there. First is, I think it, it has to do, so, so you're right that Sweden has suffered a bit of, a, of an economic uh, downturn and, and so have many of the other countries in Europe, although the European Commission has actually projected that in 2020, Sweden will have a not a bad result at all. In fact, I think it's going to be the second best in, in Europe <laughs> after Denmark. So yes, everybody's going down, but, but Sweden's not going down as much. Um, and so the first thing to say is actually it's not that bad. Uh, and it certainly isn't worse in Sweden than it is in the other countries in Europe, you know, the UK, for example, or, or Italy or France. So, so that's the first thing is that actually that the, the idea that somehow Sweden has suffered for its, for its sins here is actually misguided. Mm. Um, the second thing to say is that of course, Sweden will suffer even if it didn't have a lockdown itself because economies in the modern day are interconnected. Absolutely. And this is not really a behavioral economics observation. This is more just sort of a, a fact of the world that many people don't seem to really understand in, in their daily lives. But, but one of the things that economics really tries to get across to people, right? Everybody is interdependent and interconnected and, and not just within a nation, but across nations. And so when we kill off, our, you know, our economy in Australia, due to lockdown restrictions, we are having ripple effects. We are creating welfare losses in countries far, far from our shores because we rely on those countries' labor and capital to create things like raw materials that then, you know, are traded on upstream markets and then become intermediate goods and then finally final goods, which then get sold here. So when we are not downtown buying a coffee at the local cafe, we are essentially putting out of work some poor guy in Kenya, right? So that, that kind of connection. Is, is very under the surface and people don't think about that, but that is actually the reason why we say in economics that trade is the best aid, right? If you, if you want the products that some poor country can make, great, right? That's a win-win for everybody. So, so when, we, when we see that Sweden is going down in terms of its economy, it's because 
you know, it's going to be trying to produce products that aren't going to have as high a demand in other countries because the other countries are, are also suffering because they've locked down their economies, right? So they are just as subject as any other country to yeah. the vagaries of being interconnected economically. And we saw that in the great financial crisis, right? We see how people and, and economies and institutions are interconnected. So that's the second thing to say. The third thing to say is, and again, this is not really about behavioral economics, but it's just about having a, a, an economic view of the situation, is that the, the effects of what we have done in 2020 to our economies worldwide will be playing out for years to come. Yeah. And my prediction is that Sweden will not see nearly as negative a longer run effect, mm -hmm. um, on, particularly on certain subsets of their population than many of the other countries that did lock down hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that's just not in the data yet because we haven't collected it. We haven't lived through it yet. But, but for example, the young in Sweden, I think, will be much less badly affected than the young in Australia. Um, mm -hmm. Sweden's, you know, international education and, um, you know, other kinds of industries, hospitality industries and whatnot, will not be as affected because they're not planning to keep themselves locked out from everybody else in the world uh, for as long as Australia seems to be planning to do, which seems like it's almost, you know, infinite in terms of the medium run certainly i don't know when we're going to get borders open but it hasn't even been talked about yet right yeah, so uh, that's going to create massive amounts of industrial restructuring obviously very uh, acute pain in the short run for those sectors and for the young people in particular who are looking for jobs or you know don't have the experience to be able to you know migrate from one industry to the next industry as easily as you know people who are more established um, and those people who can't work from home either because they're in maybe blue collar kinds of occupations or, or again, they're so young that they, they don't really, you know, they're not needed as much. Their skills aren't as much in demand yet because they haven't established a reputation. And so it's going to be very hard for those people. Whereas I think the, the Swedish uh, analog uh, subgroups are going to not feel those kinds of effects of nearly as much, including their children, because of course they didn't close schools. Right. They, did. yeah, they just kept going. Um, now, we, there's obviously been a lot of uh, demand-side policies used by governments here and overseas to combat the, the lockdowns that they have uh, put onto our economies. Do you think after we have eventually recovered across the world that there will be major reviews of demand-side policies and whether that's the way forward to grow our economies? You know, I, I don't really predict that that's going to be the main focus when we finally get recovered. I think people will probably look back on programs like JobKeeper generally favorably, but they will think, gosh, it got a little bit, um, you know, past its, its sell-by date. <laughs> uh, I was a big supporter of, of JobKeeper when it first came in because the great thing about JobKeeper is that it offered a way to keep fixed and in place those network links between employers and employees that, that if you otherwise just stop the economy will just be severed. And when you sever those links, you sign yourself up to having to recreate them later, right? And that costs a lot of time, a lot of resources that could have gone into just, you know, other things, right? We know about opportunity costs, right? So that basic fact of JobKeeper preserving network ties, that was why I really supported it initially. And I wasn't anticipating that we'd be keeping the lockdowns going for as long as we have. I mean, that's been ridiculous, right? A number of months that particularly okay. Victoria, I mean, it's madness, it's madness, right? And so that it really has gotten to have a bit of the smell of the old fish, you know? It's like, okay, people are continuing to get money in their pockets, but it's just coming out of the government's uh, you know, ability to create currency, and it's not actually reflective of real productivity. So, you know, for example, the GDP announcements that have come through about the September quarter, Guy DeBell was quoted about, you know, how maybe we're going to be out of the recession technically because we're, we're going to be growing just slightly in GDP in the September quarter relative to the June quarter when we fell by something like 7%. Well, you know, if you're going by the income method or the expenditure method, maybe so. But 
the production method, which is the other way of trying to gauge what's happening in an economy, would tell you a very different story because you know we just haven't had the amount of production of goods and services, and that's being masked by the fact that the government has been infusing cash into the into the demand side. Now, I am kind of you know we're all Keynesians at heart at some level, right? And I and I, I do think that that's something you need to do. You need to have a role for government and the role of the government has to be strong in a recession to, to you know, counter cyclically spend in order to kickstart the economy. But I would prefer to have the government be transitioning to programs that are not just handout programs as the JobKeeper one is, but more trying to encourage investment and encourage um, people to look for jobs that suit their skill sets rather than you know, just sitting around waiting for things to get better when we really don't have an end game even. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. So if we look at um, the situation in 2020, what do you think are the other economic policies that could have been adopted this year rather than the approach we've taken? Well, it's very interesting. The first recommendation I would give is, is very much in the realm of behavioral economics, which is that the government missed an opportunity to control the fear early on. Yeah. Our government did not attempt to, to counteract all the messages that were coming in through the media. It did not attempt to do its own independent, verified analysis of the Ferguson modeling for Australia. Um, it was running with, with projections which were actually not being borne out by data. And that became very clear by certainly April, May, and it did not update those projections. And so it, it was basically uh, you know, kind of putting its head in the sand going, la, 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 yes, okay, we believe this, this line without recognizing it has a role of protecting the population from its own foibles, in particular when it's possessed by fear. And, and fear, you know, what was it? One of, one of the big U.S. Uh, politicians at one stage said, you know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Fear yeah. is awful for, for economic activity because it constrains investments. It makes people not be willing, not feel secure that they're going to have a stable situation in, you know, time period T plus one or T plus five or T plus 10. And so they don't make those investments that, you know, otherwise might be, you know, paying off in the longer run. A good example of this I always give people is, you know, if you're living in a very unstable, uncertain environment and you're not sure whether, you know, tomorrow you're going to be able to feed your kids or in five years there's going to be a functioning economy, then you're less likely to train your children in the kinds of occupations that might be best suited to them. And instead, you're going to train them how to, how to feed themselves, how to make sure they can get shelter, you know, basic stuff on the lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You've got to make sure they're going to be secure, right? Whereas in a country like Australia, you can, we have the luxury of the stability and the security in most years anyway, to, to allow our children to invest in those kinds of occupations, you know, develop their, their skills in areas that really suit them. So for example, my son, who is currently home from his university that kicks people out of the dorms in, in March, um, is studying music, you know, and that's just not something that you'd be able to do. I mean, I spent hours of his childhood listening to the piano, right? And that's just not something that, I, I love the piano, it's great, but it does, you know, it's like very intense after a while. Um, and he's, he enjoys it, he loves it, he's very well suited, very musical child, it's great. So that match of him to that, that skill, that occupation, was something that, you know, would not have been discovered with high likelihood in, in a place that was much less stable, much more uncertain. And it's the same reason why we don't get foreign direct investment in a lot of countries that have that sort of instability. It's one of the reasons economists recommend stability, right? So when you allow fear and that sort of uncertainty that, that was surrounding us in, in March and April and May right, to continue to propagate, and you just extend that for some you know, infinite horizon saying, well, I'm not sure how things are gonna work out. And you, you, don't, you, know, you don't have a firm 
comforting, reassuring hand of government, then you're not fulfilling your role. You're not, you're, you're actually doing a disservice to the population. And I, I find that actually unethical behavior of the government. So, so that's been the main thing that I would, have, would say is that the economic policy uh, that we should have seen was actually in the area of recognizing behavioral bias of the population. And if you want to call it that in their possession, you know, by this fear and countering that, that they didn't counter it. And therefore we've, we've got ourselves into a much worse situation than we otherwise would have. Um, the other kinds of things that could be done. I mean, I think uh, one of the things I've been spruiking on about, I'd love to see more of is an adaptation of Bruce Chapman's higher education contribution scheme, which is an income contingent loan scheme that we use to put university students through their, their um, studies in Australia. I'd like to see an adaptation of that for uh, businesses and possibly even individuals to come out of this recession. And the great thing about the income contingent loan scheme idea is that you're essentially allowing the government to take onto its shoulders the downside risk of an investment. Mm -hmm. So in a situation where businesses are uncertain and you know unsure of whether things are gonna go better in six months or a year, which is exactly the problem I was just talking about, you want to give them the confidence that you know they can take a risk and they're actually not gonna you know get kicked in the face if that risk doesn't pay off. And so the idea of a revenue contingent loan for that kind of business would be, well, if your revenues rise above a certain threshold, within six months or a year or however you'd like to structure it, then you know you have to pay us back. So it's a loan. But if, it, if they don't rise above that threshold, then the loan is forgiven, right? Yes. And it's interest-free, just like Hex. And yes. Bruce Chapman has done some very careful modeling of this. He's a working paper out. Of course, the devil's in the details as with any scheme like yes. this. But I would prefer the government to be doing that sort of program where at least there's a chance of getting you know the bulk of the money back yes. than just having the handouts to people. Because it also spurs, again, it spurs that, that coal face action in terms yes. of investments and decisions that will get the economy kick-started again. Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, one of the things you, you talked there about decisions and this fear factor, which I, I have found just mind-boggling. Why do you think there's been no discussion either by government or, or by most economists about this opportunity cost of the policies that are being used? I mean, opportunity cost is like the most fundamental part of economics. And I've just been flabbergasted that nobody has even sort of put that into the realms of discussion. Look, I, I found it jaw-dropping. I honestly feel, and I've, I've said this in a speech recently to the Economic Society of Australia, I feel that my profession, our profession, has let down Australia in its hour of greatest need. Mm -hmm. And it's been, it's given me such despair. Uh, and I, I don't understand it. I, I, I feel though, if anything, really what we've learned, I guess, is that, uh, I hate to say it, but many economists in Australia really don't um, practice useful economics and, and they are more interested in going along with the crowd, whatever the crowd happens to think is the, the hot topic of the day, than in actually uh, you know, applying the trade in a way that maximizes social welfare. Because that's the ultimate maximum end of the discipline, right? We're looking to maximize social welfare in the way that we manage our economies. Sure. And, and we've just not seen advice from our, from our profession of economics, which is exactly the profession where you'd expect to see that advice coming, right, uh, in, this, in this crisis. And, and, you know, as I tell people, one of, the, one of the hallmarks of economics is that if you enter the discipline, you will find yourself the, the fast friend of no one because you're never fully in anybody's corner, right? You yeah. never... You want to give any person everything that they're asking for, right? Because everybody's always asking for everything they can get, right? And we recognize that there are trade-offs and you can't give everything to everybody. You can't. We don't have the money. We don't have the resources. And so to recognize that makes you just a little bit ornery to everyone, right? And so nobody really loves you. So you have to, you have to have a very strong family. 
to be an economist, right? You have to have a place where you're getting your love and your support and your and your reassurance and your your acceptance. That's not your profession because your profession will will never fulfill those needs that you have. But maybe a lot of Australian economists look to the profession to fulfill those kinds of needs as well, and maybe that's what's blinded them. But I've been equally disheartened as you um, to to see the absence of professional economists coming out in favor of a more holistic view on COVID, yeah. and uh, and the recognition of opportunity costs, the recognitions of all of the costs that that were basically just not acknowledged in March and April when we started to, to do these massive wholesale economic lockdowns. Um, and, and, the, and in fact, not even have people just been silent, but sometimes they've been really hurting uh, the, the dialogue by coming out with ridiculous statements like there are no trade-offs, you know, which is, of course, the opposite of what yeah. an economist should be saying. Yeah, so it's, it is interesting. So do, do you think then, you, you mentioned the uh, loan system, which I thought was an excellent idea. Do you, do you think that we should be in Australia focusing on improving our productivity and looking at reforming that side of our economy? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because productivity is one of those very um, slippery concepts. Productivity can, I mean, the way that we've, we typically think of it uh, being helpful is that labor productivity grows as we develop more technology and that technology allows us to combine our labor with something, you know, automated. And so we can get more output for a single hour of work, right? So that's, that's the typical story. And of course, the skill bias technological change story says that that's happened more for people with high skill than low skill over the last 40 years or so, and that that's why we've seen an increase in inequality. Um, I actually have a paper on that question asking whether that's in fact the explanation for increasing inequality in Australia. And uh, the answer that I come to is probably not. <laughs> um, because in fact, the, the inequality in Australia has been driven not by people working in industries which are heavily technologically dependent, so heavily um, you know, affected by recent developments in technology, where you'd think the higher skilled people could combine their skills with that great technology that's just come on board the last 40 years, and then they'd be more productive, but rather in industries where um, there's a lot of connection to government. So there's a lot of favors to hand back and forth. So regulatory favors and you know favors in terms of how to how to structure an industry that might you know be assistance to the incumbent, for example. Um, and so I think Australia's problem there really has much more to do with corruption than with uh, too much skill bias psychological change. Um, but in terms of trying to do something about productivity, it's it's not easy to see what a government would do. I mean, there's you know you can make a facile argument. Well, it needs to support more education and training, right? But you know, the kind of education and training that you are talking about makes a huge difference. And what sector you're talking about, you know, if we don't have sectors where that sort of combination of technology and, and labor is going to lead to an increase in productivity, then it's not immediately obvious that more training is going to help. Um, our, so then we want to maybe invest in ways that will help our industrial structure to shift towards those sectors that have more of a combination of technology and labor, maybe like green technology stuff, you know, solar voltaics or whatever. And we already do that a bit. There's been a bit of a call to do more of that. Maybe that would help. Um, it's certainly true that we've had lower levels of innovation and entrepreneurship in Australia than in our peer nations, relatively speaking, where we don't do well on those metrics. And so from that perspective, maybe, you know, you can say our productivity is lower, you know, the innovation potential that we have is lower to, to figure out ways of being more productive. Um, and then the, again, the question is, what does the government do? You know, if you just slap a label on a, on a dollar and say, this is for innovation, and then you say, well, where are you going to put that? Yeah. It's very easy to make a facile argument, right? It's like, oh, well, there's something that's calling itself an innovation center. We'll give it money, right? But that's, that's actually just kind of a shiny brass knob situation, right? It's, it looks nice and shiny. I'll give it money and let's see if it works, right? But you're not thinking through how does that dollar connect to actually on the ground a mechanism of creating more innovation. And, and, and there, you know, you have to think more broadly, like an economist, about the, the entire suite of 
contextual factors that are going to encourage or discourage people from being innovative. Uh, and that just runs the broad swath of, uh, you know, industrial structure to tax uh, reform, tax, you know, systems and, you know, the red tape or otherwise that, that affects businesses and when they try to do certain things and, um, you know, all sorts of other la layers of, of interaction with each other and with the government that people have to undertake if they want to innovate, right? And so that becomes a much, much thornier problem and, and a lot uh, less easy to solve. It is definitely a difficult problem to solve. Now, you've, you've talked a lot um, about behavioural economics as we've been going through the podcast. Can you explain for the benefit of our students what the difference is between behavioural economics, which is a relatively new discipline, and traditional economics? Yeah, so this is a very hard question because, in fact, behavioural economics doesn't have a definition on which even all behavioral economics, uh, you know, professors or, or purveyors would agree. Yeah. Um, and in fact, it's a very broad church. So behavioral economics includes people who are economic consultants going to businesses and, and talking about what we often call behavioral biases or, you know, biases and heuristics. And that will include things like present bias that I spoke about before in relation to COVID-19. It includes things like overconfidence or, um, you know, a um, sort of a tendency to be averse to losses more than to want gains, right? So, so certain kinds of ways in which we may um, make a, a different sort of decision because we perceive the world in a way that isn't as objective and rational, supposedly, as the mainstream economic, you know, individual atomistic rational model would claim that, that people usually make decisions. Um, and, you know, it can get a little deeper rather than just listing off a whole list of, you know, biases, bias one, bias two, bias three, bias four, right, which is very boring and facile, right, you can get a little deeper and start thinking about, well, what causes these biases if we do have these kind of systematic um, ways of making decisions that might not be perfectly optimal, why is that? And one of the reasons might be cognitive constraints. So the idea that, you know, the human brain cannot possibly give all of the required energy to every single decision problem that is needed in order to come up with the absolutely optimal solution in that moment. And so then it becomes ironically or, or sort of, you know, uh, very weirdly optimal to not spend every single amount of resource that you would need to to make an optimal decision in every single decision. So it becomes sort of it's basically rational inattention, right, is what we call it. So you yeah. rationally don't allocate full resources to solving perfectly every single decision problem, because if you did, you'd end up with, you know, the, the opportunity cost of doing that is that you would make really bad decisions in other areas, right, because you can only make so many decisions. And so that kind of idea that there are, there are cognitive constraints around our ability to cope with all of the onslaught of information that we get every day, every second, and then make decisions on the basis of that, right? That kind of underpins some of the behavioral biases that we may have seen. Also this idea of heuristics that we are just kind of, you know, using rules of thumb more frequently than, than really doing all the math to perfectly solve, you know, where is the long run average cost curve tangent to the short run avocado, you know, that sort of stuff. We don't do that actually, right? And the reason is because we don't have the time, right? Who has time to do that, right? I mean, you do for your exams and you should know that students, but, but, but the real person in the real world is, is not, you know, they're not calculating that in the way that you do in micro one, right? And so they're running on heuristics that have been honed over time to, to roughly give the right answer most of the time kind of thing, because that's just the most effective and therefore optimal way to solve that problem. So, so there is a whole, you know, set of ways in which you can maybe start explaining behavioral biases, what are called behavioral biases, through a better understanding of the human individual. And that's kind of the way I, I like to think of, of behavioral economics as a as a whole discipline is that it's trying to expand 
the image of the individual decision maker that is promulgated in first year economics textbooks, uh, you know, which is atomistic, individual, you know, oriented, selfish, amoral, unemotive, disconnected from anybody else, right? Because looks at everybody else in an instrumental way. Try to augment that with you know, other things that we know are true about humans, right? We know that humans actually have feelings. Yes. And that sometimes those feelings drive their decisions, right? We know that humans fall in love. We know that humans like to belong to groups, right? We know that humans love power, right? We know these things and we know them not just because we are economists, but because we're people and because there are other disciplines in the world, our sister disciplines, which have studied these things in great depth. And, and we can, as economists, bring the advantages of our training, such as formally setting out what we mean when we talk about you know, a particular motivation. We have math to express that. We have math to express how a market would look and our ability to see holistically a situation rather than just focusing on one aspect, right? We think of total welfare in all the ways that it may be considered and, and, and created, right? And so that allows us to really get a, a really nice hold on concepts like, like power. And I'm not just talking about market power. I'm talking political power, right? Power to, to, to direct resources in a particular way, not just because you're the only supplier in the market. And, and love and loyalty, right? And, and group identity. These things that we know matter to decision-making. We know they do. And if they matter to decision-making, then they are an economics concern. They, sh they should be of concern to economists trying to understand and predict human behavior. So that's kind of what I think of as the, the most noble form of behavioral economics, I guess. And I, I study a lot of those issues in my research. And there is you know, a lot of research in, in behavioral economics on, for example, altruism um, and identity, right? the economics of identity. And, uh, and it's in those sorts of areas where I think um, behavioral economics has the most potential to actually eventually advance the theoretical spine of the discipline of economics such that it isn't just stuck in the mud with this one, you know, as if model. So, because that's often the defense of the mainstream economic model. It's like, well, if people make decisions as if they were like that atomistic, you know, wealth maximizer, then, you know, it doesn't really matter that that model isn't perfect because we've roughly done an okay job. And, you know, that's, that's fair enough in the short run to say that, but in the long run, that spells death for the discipline. That spells you, you have, you were finished growing. There is no more, you know, there's no more discovery to be had. <laughs> You're just content with a model that's just not accurate, right? And you defend it by saying, well, it's roughly okay most of the time. And that's not, it's not very satisfying. No, I don't think it is either. I definitely don't think it is. <laughs> so do, do you think, particularly in the current set of circumstances, that a focus a lot more on those behavioral economics theories and concepts would help drive a positive way out of the circumstances we're in? I mean, I think so. I think a recognition of the importance of fear would certainly be helpful. Um, and, and we could still benefit from that even now. In fact, just a, a couple of hours ago, I was speaking with the Sydney Chamber of Commerce who are having me out in a, in a week or two to, to do a little you know, panel discussion of what should the state government do to try to get us out of recession. And one of the main things I, I told them, and I think it's just true, is that the governments can really do a, a very much better job in terms of um, their messaging around fear or otherwise, right? The messaging to say, we have dominated this virus. We understand, you know, we've, we've got its number basically. We know how to treat it better. We know who it affects. We know, you know, how to prevent the, the spread in the areas where it's most likely to spread. And armed with this new information, we're gonna push forward and we're gonna, you know, regrow the economy. That's the messaging we need. 
not this messaging of, oh, let's keep ourselves pure for as long as possible. And, you know, if you, if you sneeze on someone, you're a bad person, right? I, that, that stuff is just not helpful. And it just wraps people up in the fear for that much longer, you know, and prevents them from participating in the economy. Yeah. And, and the economy is what ultimately delivers people welfare, Right. I mean, this is the basic point that it's not even a behavioral economics point. Right. But but just to raise the level of economic literacy in this country, not just amongst people, you know, in the profession, which also needs to be done, apparently, but but people on the street and the politicians to understand it's not a question of health versus, you know, and lives versus money. Right. The economy is not about money. You know, money, just like mathematics and economics, is a tool is a tool. It is not the end point. It is not the goal. It is not where we stop, right? Because money buys things that are good for people, like hospitals <laughs> and better educational quality and better roads so that you're not going to have as many accidents. And, you know, the ability to have the luxury of spending on things like, you know, environmental regulation, which gives us cleaner air. You know, what are the countries in the world that are the cleanest environmentally? They're the ones that are the richest. Right. And, and that's not by accident because right. environmental protection is a luxury good. Right. People often claim, oh, you know, carbon emissions, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. OK, it's bad. But, you know, where we're doing the best job of protecting the environment are in places like Australia. Right. The, the air you breathe is cleaner than, you know, 90 percent of the air that other people breathe in the world. So thank your lucky stars for that. And thank the economy. So that connection between the economy and the ability to protect people and to, to, to further and, and, you know, their livelihoods and make them thrive, I think is somehow lost on a lot of Australians. And, and I would love to be able to, you know, change that somehow. Uh, this is one of the reasons I do these sorts of podcasts, right? I mean, I just think it's really important to understand that. And it doesn't mean that, that economists are money-grubbing, profit-seeking, neoliberal, you know, Trump-cannot pigs. I mean, just, that's just not true, right? It's the opposite, actually, right? opposite. Economics is all about maximizing social welfare. And how do we maximize social welfare? Having a healthy economy is a really big part of that. So that's why we're trying to get the economy going again. That's why we want to get ourselves out of recession. Absolutely. Now I've got one final question, Judy, um, and it's to do with the study of economics. Um, I am, as you know, a complete economics nerd. There's no better subject in the world as far as I'm concerned. But the government, in its wisdom, have decided to put up the fees for people to study economics going forward, which I am really upset about. But why, in your opinion, do you think, regardless of those fees, the opportunity cost, um, it's still such an important subject for students to study? Oh, gosh. Well, first of all, let me just uh, preface this by saying I think the, uh, the price elasticity of demand for economics degrees is actually, um, you know, favorable for us. So even if you put the price up, I don't think you're going to get that many fewer students studying economics. And the reason is actually, ironically enough, because of the HEC system, right? The actual price of the degree doesn't even get seen by people until way after they graduate, maybe, when they get the higher you know, wages from having studied something in a university. So um, I don't actually think that's that whole price adjustment thing is a particularly big deal in terms of adjusting student preferences. I think the main thing that's gonna adjust students, uh, student numbers in the short run is the fact that we are in a recession. And in a recession, everybody goes back to school because right. people can't get jobs, right? And so you're gonna see a, an increase in enrollments across the board. Now, why is it that people don't study economics as much? I think one of the main problems that we've had, and, and you can see this in the data from New South Wales, I haven't seen the data for the other states, but certainly in New South Wales, one of the main problems we've had is that the, the introduction of the business studies um, curriculum 
alongside the economics curriculum from, I think it was in the 90s sometime, really cannibalized um, the economics enrollments. So students started to opt to do business studies rather than economics. And then that carries on into universities. And so I think people think of business as being snazzy and fancy and sexy and that's how I make money and I can get the girls and the good cars and, and, and or the boys and the you know great houses and that's that's what I'll do for my career right and in fact business business is not understood to be a traditional academic discipline like it's sort of a hodgepodge of different stuff all of which has some convex combination of economics law and psychology those are actually the three founding disciplines of anything in business yep. and so if you want to study something that actually has some intellectual meat on its bones because we've been around for 200 years 300 years and that have that has been thought and rethought and is always relevant because politicians always need to make decisions about how to allocate scarce resources, Absolutely. then obviously economics is the choice, right? It's the obvious choice, rather than all of the derivative disciplines that come out of that, you know, which are management, marketing, accounting, you know, um, information systems, actuarial studies. I mean, these things are all useful in their own way, but they are, they are very narrow applications of the combination, a particular combination of law, economics, and psychology. And so you kind of, you know, with a little bit of dash of applied mathematics thrown in for good measure, because again, math is a tool, right? Just as, as language is a tool, right? Math and language are a tool in, across the, the social sciences and in the businesses and so that's all, that's kind of understood. But in terms of understanding, you know, the big questions of our time, including why has the world gone into, you know, created its own recession by stabbing its economy in the stomach, and how can we get out of that? I mean, there is no better discipline for understanding and, and answering those questions than economics. So I just think that the world is crying out for better trained and more well-trained economists to help steward us out of this horrible mess that we're in and hopefully keep it from happening again. Well, that's it from Economic Central this week. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. It was certainly a pleasure to talk to Gigi and uh, to get her insights on what's happening in the economy, both here in Australia and around the world. So thanks for listening and see you next time.